You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. Gateway, good morning. Well, uh, these past two weeks, we've set this goal in front of ourselves which was essentially to allow Paul's letter to Philemon, the letter that we just heard read over us and to us and for us. Our our goal was to let this letter mess with us, to kind of stir up something in our hearts, to maybe stir our affections for Jesus, maybe annoy us appropriately. Uh, And so to help facilitate this, we've talked about a couple of things. In our first week, we talked about this idea of faithful presence, not moving towards people in outrage or passivity, but charting out this third way, this way of faithful presence, the way of Jesus. And then we we talked about this idea of expectant prayer, like how is it that Paul on his lips can can like know that it's uh, Philemon's prayers that he's counting on to deliver him from his place of bondage in, in prison. And we've set these things in front of us. We've discussed these things as a way to help us move forward into the way of Jesus. And this, this morning, our goal is the same. Our, our goal is to allow Philemon's, this letter to Philemon to mess with us. And uh, this morning, we're, we're going to talk about power. Um, and maybe that sounds loaded. It feels a little bit loaded for me. Uh, and Philemon's going to really function more as this extended object lesson, lesson rather than a direct teaching text where we're going through parsing verbs, going verse by verse. Um, and, and yet, as I say that we're going to talk about power and Philemon's going to be the place where we try and focus our attention, I recognize that I might be the least qualified person to talk about power. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I'm white. Um, I'm Anglo-Saxon. I'm Protestant. Um, I don't know if you also know, I'm a male. I've had a fair bit of education. And whether I like it or not, these categories and the culture that we find ourselves in, they just give power to these things. I didn't ask for it. I was born into it. Yes, these are true, but yet power is there. It just kind of comes with it. And so as I'm talking about power, I didn't really know how to get my mind around it. I heard this illustration, so I'm just, this is plagiarism. I'm copying this. It was good. So here's what I mean by power. Imagine we're playing Monopoly. And by we, I just mean the other wasps in the room, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant males, just us. We're just playing Monopoly because it's Monopoly. That's how we do. And the rest of you are still in the room, but we are now charting our way around the board. If you've never played Monopoly, uh, I don't actually know the end goal. Is it just to take over the whole board? Yes, the nods of affirmation. Okay, so the white men in the room are taking over the world. Sound familiar? I don't know. Uh, so, so we're playing Monopoly, and the rest of you, you're like, hey, I like, I like Monopoly. And then out of the generosity of our hearts and spirits, we look around and we say, hey, if we've been playing for a couple of hours, maybe we should let these other people play. Or, you, or, or, or in a different scenario, you start saying, hey, maybe we would play. Or I don't know if I would have made that move. And we silence you the first 18 times, but then we say, hey, maybe there's some merit to that decision. So now we've opened up the board to the play. And you're excited because it's Monopoly. You get your turn. You, you pick out your little thimble. I always go with the hat. Um, and, or you're the race car, so you're like, yes, okay. Um, so you get your race car, and you roll the dice. And you go, and you land on a property, and that property's already owned. You say, it's, it's okay. That's just my first roll. But now you've gone around a couple of times, and each roll of the dice, you're, you're like biting your fingernails, hoping that you don't just land on another property that's already been owned because, by the way, we've been playing for a while. And so this happens for a little bit, 
and you've gone around a couple times now, and now you're just hoping and praying that you land on no thing. And you soon realize that the safest place for you in this game is just in jail. So this is, this is kind of what I mean by power. In power, it's simply the ability to direct or influence the behavior of others. And I think most of us have power in the room. Some of us have positional power. Others of us have parental power. Uh, there's, but most of us have power in the room. Even babies, when they scream out, have some power that they're exercising in that moment. And Philemon provides us this unique entry point into a game like this. It helps us to see how power might be at work in the world, um, specifically back in the first century. But remember, Paul nor Philemon, they don't start at the place that we meet him in this letter. We Paul's life doesn't start as a prisoner. In Philemon's life, it doesn't end as a master of a household. And so what I want to do this morning to help us get into this thing of power in Philemon is I want us to, to actually follow Jesus. I want us to track with Jesus and, and go through, I don't know if it's this odd pattern or these occurrences in the stories of, of Jesus, but it's this thing that picks up steam through the Gospels. And as it picks up steam, it kind of takes us in these unexpected directions in Jesus's life um, and yet I realize at this moment, all that I'm saying is a bit fuzzy uh, and actually tells you nothing. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to dive into the Gospels. Uh, we're going to be flowing through pretty quickly. We're going to be in Matthew. Uh, if you want to try and like get your VBS on and, and like uh, keep up, you're welcome to. The text will be on the screen. Um, but we're going to dive into the Gospels and then come up for air in Philemon. So let me just pray for the culture of our hearts and our church, and then we're going to get after it. Um, God, we just, we wait upon you. Um, every week, I, I have no idea what everyone's bringing into the room, whether there's like, a, like, a, like a, an ambient angst around the holidays or there's joy. I just don't, I simply do not know. And so God, there's, there's no way that these words that are gonna come out of my lips unless your spirit carries them along, unless you spirit carry your word along into our hearts that anything is gonna happen. So would you come? Would you meet us? Would you meet us with power through your word, a, a power that shakes loose the bonds of sin and death and shame? And would you walk us into the light of life that we see in the face of Jesus? So would you help us cling to you? Would you meet us in this moment? Give us ears to hear. Help us put away our phones and the distraction to hear from you, to actually say with our lives that you are worth hearing from. So would you come? Would you meet us in these moments? So if you want to keep up, uh, we're going to be in the gospel according to Matthew chapter 8. Uh, we're going to be starting... In verse 2, so if you have your phone, you can flip over there or tap your way over there. If you're going analog, flip your way on over. Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 2, and this is what we read. A leper came to him and knelt before him. This is Jesus, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus, he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. 
So there's, uh, there's a lot happening here in this little passage. Um, and we might find most of it odd. Uh, maybe we read this account and it's the whole leprosy thing. Like maybe we think, okay, certainly this is going to be the big odd, uh, like the big uh, pattern, the odd thing that comes, but this is not the thing. Neither is Jesus who is telling him to go and present himself to the priest an odd thing. I mean, this is just on the lips of Jewish rabbis, of course, that if Jesus sees a cleansing take place, he's going to direct him towards the priest to go to the place where the cleansing happens in the temple. So these are not the odd things. The odd thing is what Jesus says right before his remark about the whole temple code thing. The odd thing is when he says, see that you say nothing to anyone. So we have this display of grace and power through Jesus. He cleanses the leper and then silence. I don't don't know if this has ever struck you while reading these passages, but Jesus is cleansing somebody. He's displaying his power and then he's basically telling this person to just be silent. But isn't this the whole point? Like, to tell people about Jesus, like we want to encounter him to, out of the overflow and abundance of our hearts to tell Jesus or tell people about Jesus. But apparently this was not what Jesus had in mind. So then a couple of chapters later, uh, Matthew chapter 12, we read this in verse 15. Now he's, he's been causing some hubbub on the Sabbath. And so these large crowds are coming. And this is what we read, verse 15, large crowds followed him and he healed them all. Just think about this. Like, think about the last sporting event you went to or saw on the television, um, and there's mobs, like gobs of people, and they're thronging around Jesus, and he's just like, you get healed, and, and you get healed, and you get healed, and maybe somebody just runs up from the side, touches his cloak, and it's like, okay, now you get healed. It's just like everywhere, and everywhere that the healing goes, Jesus says, he's warning them, hey, don't, don't make me known. It's, here you go, but don't say anything. And if this isn't odd enough, let's uh, just go to uh, Matthew 16. Starting in verse 13, this is what we read. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people, or who, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what do you, but what about you, he asked. What do you say, or who do you say I am? And Simon Peter, he answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then jump right down to verse 20. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the odd pattern. Like this is the, this occurrence of say nothing. It just continues to roll time and time off Jesus's lips. And then in the very next chapter, Jesus, he ups the ante and he takes his inner circle, and he, it, which is uh, Peter, James, and John. Peter, who we just heard from, and then his, these other, these two, the brothers, James and John, he goes up the mountain. And in the minds of like the Hebrew people, going up the mountain is a big deal. Like the mountains are the high places. This is where you encounter the divine. This is where Yahweh is. So they go up the mountain. And then these uh, Peter, James, and John essentially have this mystical experience. 
Jesus is legit transfigured before them. The, the glory of God the Father is like shining brightly forward in the face of Jesus and they behold the glory of God in him. And, and, and then these two other figures who in the biblical narratives have, have also gone up the mountain to encounter God in his presence. All of a sudden Moses is there and Elijah is there and Peter is stoked. Peter's like, we should just be here. I gotta, let's build some tents. Let's just stay here. Then this happens. This is ch- chapter, 17, chapter 17, verse five. A voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. By, by the way, stop right there. That is an appropriate response um, I think sometimes we are really eager to encounter the presence of God. Like we sing songs about the presence of God coming. This is kind of what happens when the presence of God shows up. You are la- like laid bare before the, the maker. <laughs> and it goes on. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Where's, where's Moses and Elijah? And then check this out. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And that little turn of phrase, Son of Man, this is one of the things Jesus loves to say about himself. It just means the human one. So don't say anything until you see the human one has been raised from the dead. So just imagine if you will, with me, being a disciple of Jesus in these moments. But maybe you yourself have had a, like an experience of God's refreshing presence. It's so vibrant, it, like it brings you to your knees. There's, you're like, you're caught up in the third heavens. You're like weeping or something crazy is happening. And then imagine in that moment that Jesus just, he turns to you and he says, hey, hey, uh, hey Rachel, why don't, why don't we just keep this one between you and me? Just keep this on the DL, right? Seriously, Jesus? Like, just keep it, on the, keep it on the DL. Like, literally a voice of blessing and affirmation have, has just been spoken over Jesus. His identity is affirmed before his followers. Like, if they weren't sold out before, now they're in. And Jesus' response is, don't tell anyone This is an odd way to build a movement. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah, this is not like a marketing campaign that any company, like principal's not gonna get down with this. This is not, this is just not how we think. Like if you've you've come to fix everything that's broken and unleash the beauty of heaven here on earth, then why this repeated pattern where Jesus, he does something amazing. He blows people's minds only to say, hey, don't say anything. Why, why don't you just be quiet? It's like, do the people not get it? Do they, are they gonna mess it up or something? Maybe. See, but it doesn't stop here. Like this isn't just isolated to the gospel according to Matthew. It's littered across the gospels. But then we, we see this quite remarkable thing happen in John chapter six. So turn there with me. So if you're in Matthew, just uh, turn to the right a few times. So John chapter six, we we see this amazing thing in Jesus's life and ministry. This is the feeding of the 5,000. 
And perhaps you've heard about this, maybe read it in a children's book or something like that. Uh, so we're not going to focus on the feeding of the 5,000. We're going to res- uh, focus on the response to the feeding of the 5,000. And this is what we read in verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, that is the feeding, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. R- remember what was on the disciples' lips? Who, who do people say that I am? Maybe John the Baptist or Elijah or, or, or one of the prophets. This indeed, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. It's like he seeks refuge in the place where you go up to be with God withdraws away from the crowd. And if it's not clear yet, Gateway, uh, there's something dynamic, something powerful about this Jesus. And here, it's as though these women and men have this moment of clarity, like they can see the, the, the dynamism, the power of Jesus. And so what they do is they, they reach back into the, like the collective consciousness of their shared history. And so they reach back, which, uh, by the way, this is like three quarters of your Bible. This is the Old Testament. They reach back into this, and they bring it to bear on the present moment. And they're like, there's one in whom hope would be found. There's, there's one who would make all the wrong things right. There's one who's coming, who, who would like leave us full, who would bring us into abundant life. And so it's with full stomachs in this moment of clarity, the crowds look to Jesus and they say, indeed, it's him. He's, he's here. But just as soon as these words leave the lips of the crowd, they, as soon as they leave their mouths, Jesus He withdraws. He sees something and withdraws. And I don't know about you, but I'm left wondering in this moment, like, okay, so Jesus, like, why not become king? Isn't this this the thing? Why announce that the kingdom of God is at hand and then shy away from the kingship? Why go around performing all these miracles only to silence and then withdraw from the crowd? Uh, Why so sneaky, Jesus? But let me just ask, like, um, and this is not a rhetorical question. If you think that you've just encountered the one who's going to make all right, wrong things right, the one in whom hope is found, what are you going to do? So Dan's going to, he's going to tell some people. Um, well, Dan, the, the people here, they're going to try and find this guy because Jesus with, has just withdrawn. So they're like, they're looking for him. And their impulse is to go and find this Jesus to go get him. And they look, but Jesus is sneaky. They can't find him. So they look harder. They go to the other side. Like Jesus, they're they're going from one side of a lake to the other side of the lake. And then in John 6, verse 25, this is what we read. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? I actually don't know if that's the inflection, but that's what I imagine. When did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you. By the way, when you're reading the scriptures, if if Jesus ever throws a truly, truly at you, he's saying, hey, listen, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And I think that we often miss this. Um, 
But in the majority of the world, bread is the thing upon which economies stand and upon which they fall. Like bread is, is the thing upon which empires rise and upon which empires fall. And so let's not miss this. Jesus's words are deeply political. I mean, there are 5,000 people here, to, like 20,000 if we're counting the women and the children, which we are. So there's 20,000 people here who are about to get real rowdy. And you know what Rome calls 20,000 rowdy people? They call it a riot. You know what Rome does to a riot? They put it down. And so perhaps Jesus' move here is strategic. Like perhaps his heart is for these people not to get crushed once again by the Roman military oppressors. Like there is a way that seems wise to the crowd to make Jesus king by force. And yet for Jesus, their wisdom is cause for concern. It's as though they see a solution for Rome, but not their hearts. And so it just makes sense. Like this impulse makes sense that they would come after Jesus. Anybody who sees Jesus, it makes sense that you wanna go after him. But sometimes our motives is, is, it's just for Jesus to evacuate us from our circumstances. We actually don't want Jesus. We just want what Jesus can give us. But it's as though Jesus is is calling these people. It's like he's calling us through the story into something deeper. It's like he's saying, yeah, you saw the miracle. And so you're coming after me. I get it. I get it. But not because of who I am. You just want more bread. You just want more food. You, You just want more political stability. But is it not true that we can be fed, that we can have a relatively stable government, that we can have streets that are cleared from trash, we can have streets that are cleared from snow, we we can have access to food. Isn't it true that we can have all of these things and yet still have an ache in our soul that nothing seems to meet? Um, I I think the answer is yes to that, by the way. I think that our physical needs can be met and yet our soul is still aching deeply for something more. And to be sure, like Jesus could become king. He could accumulate and wield all sorts of power. And certainly he would be a different type of king. He'd be more loving, be more generous. But he could do this without a single person in that crowd having their hearts transformed. It's it's as though... For Jesus, force is not the answer. It's as though force chafes against the way that he moves in the world. But this is still a bit fuzzy. Uh, Like why all the stories about Jesus telling people to be quiet and then withdrawing from the spotlight. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to knit this together and then bring it back to Philemon. So let's suppose that there are two types of power and that there are different ways of exercising or wielding this power. So here's one. You have a boss, and that boss tells you to do things or she's going to dock your pay. Now, that might not be in keeping with HR policies and guidelines, but nevertheless, uh, when that boss applies pressure to fulfill a quota or perhaps to stay late or or maybe uh, to speed things up a little bit to get that next project done, uh, you don't respond because of the love and admiration that you have for your boss. You respond because she can apply paycheck 
kind of power. Or think about a parent who makes certain rules. And they have these rules because they love their children, uh, but they have these rules and it's their way or no way. And so it's either their way or maybe it's your way or the curfew is reduced or it's your way or no allowance or it's your way or it's, I, I don't know, enter any sort of punitive thing. There's those, there's, there's that thing happening. I feel the tension of that because uh, Griffin's now doing this thing where he will pick up food, look at you defiantly, and then throw it on the ground. How do you discipline a one-year-old? I don't know. But I think we can actually sink our teeth into this next thing. Think about the last time you traveled. TSA. We do the weirdest stuff for TSA, don't we? We let them scan us. We take off our shoes. We take off our belts. We take the change out of our pockets. And I thought that nobody carried change in their pockets anymore. I was proved wrong this week when I saw people getting change out of their pockets to put them in meters. But you don't bring change to the... So, so you're doing all of this stuff because this person, this TSA agent, is the one thing standing between you and making your flight. I think we get this type of power. It's civic, it's institutional, it's hierarchical, it's, um, it's the bully on the schoolyard, it's I'm bigger than you, therefore give me your lunch money, or it's the, the nation that has the largest nuclear arsenal, and it's you either get in line or we blow you up. It's that type of power, raw, physical power. And there's a, uh, this, this priest, his, his name's uh, Robert Farrar Capon, and he's like, man, he's opened my eyes to how this power dynamic might work. And he has this quote that I thought was kind of funny about this type of power. He says, unfortunately, it has a whopping limitation. If you take the view that, the want, uh, that, that one of the chief objects in life is to remain in loving relationships with other people, straight line power, which is how he describes that boss, that parent, that TSA agent, straight line power becomes useless. And this little line right here, if you take the view that one of the chief objects in life is to remain in loving relationships with other people, which is a reality that we want to bring to bear through us in Des Moines, then this, for this power to be whoppingly limited, remember Paul in his letter to Philemon, it is for love's sake that he doesn't command Philemon, but it is for love's sake that he makes his appeal to him. And you see, this, this straight line power, it's not very nuanced. You can exert force, you can apply pressure, and you could couple it with statements like, do this or else, or because I said so, I'm the boss, I'm the apostle, I'm the parent. And what's interesting about this type of power is that it's actually quite effective. You can get a tremendous amount of things done with this type of power. Like we, we see people who are hungry fed because of this type of power. We're pe- we see people who are in harm's way kept safe because of this type of power. Like we, we see children who are running towards traffic be swooped up by a parent or a guardian. And that is a good exercise of that type of power. And yet, The aim of this type of power is not to get after anyone's motives, not to get after anyone's heart, so you can exercise this power and yet leave no one changed. Now, there's another kind of power, 
And if what we just talked through is direct or right-handed power, we could call this next type of power indirect or left-handed power, or there's this Bible teacher that I love, and he calls it hammers and smells. So you have hammer power, and if you're thinking MC Hammer, just keep going. Uh, You have hammer power, and you have smell power. Let me just show you what I mean. On June 17th, 2015, it's four years ago, uh, Dylan Roof, he walked into Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and there is a, a Bible study happening. And when the parishioners bowed their heads in prayer, Dylan swung a hammer. Nine times over and over, he shot and killed these people. And he, he did so with the hope of inciting a race war. And days later, when, after he had been found and arrested, he's at his bond hearing. And there's a recording of this bond hearing where family members of the victims, they stood not directly before him, but they stood where Dylan could hear these words. And, and this is what Nadine Collier, a daughter of Ethel Lance, who was shot and killed by Dylan Roof, this is what she said. She said, you took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never, ever hold her again, but I forgive you. And have mercy on your soul. It's like the people of Emmanuel Church, they, they held tight to this line. They printed it on T-shirts. They, they, they like, it was right in front of them at all times that hate won't win. And so it was with tears in their eyes and anger and sadness swirling in their hearts that these women and these men, they refused to pick up their hammers and swing back. And to be honest with you all, like I'd forgotten altogether about this shooting. Because it seems like every time I open up my news feed and I look through, it's like another one of these things has happened. I'm almost like numb to it. I, I almost just give license to people. Yeah, of course pick up your hammer. I'm outraged. But then I saw this documentary that was aiming to tell the story of these people who refused to pick up their hammer, who refused to swing back in this documentary. It's called Emmanuel. And to these people, their response, like the beauty of it, the poise, the, like the way that they're holding the tension, it just like, it was beautiful. It was a different kind of power. It's not a hammer, but a smell. And th- think about it this way. Have you ever been walking down the street and you walk past a restaurant? You've, you've never walked past it before and there's something that's like, you catch a whiff of it. And, or, or it's like you're, you're walking home and you're, you're like getting into your hallway in your apartment and there's somebody cooking. Or you're about to step home and there's, like, there's food that's being prepared. Or I don't know, maybe you just have like leftover Chinese in the fridge and you open it up and you're like, oh! <gasps> And there's something in that moment, that smell, it like it moves you and yet catches you. It like it, it, it's like you're just caught in that moment. It stops you, it moves you all at the same time. And when I heard these people from Emmanuel, like speaking forgiveness in life over Dylan Roof, like it struck me that, that you can actually be both fierce and generous, that you can be righteously indignant about the way things are and loving at the same time. Like you can be caught up in this deep frustration how things aren't the way they're supposed to be and that not lash out. That these two realities can exist at the same time. And like this, this is smell power. But think back to the crowd. 
Remember the crowd in John 6? The ones who wanted to make Jesus king by force, this crowd, the ones who encounter this Jewish rabbi uh, man who's like, he's announcing a different type of kingdom and then he's coming through on it. He's feeding them. He has a different way of ordering the world, not through coercive military violence, but through enemy love. One who's like, who could finally lift the boot of oppression off the necks of the Israelites. And when they see this, do you remember what they said? This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. I don't know if you've noticed this, but um, this past week I was like, I was forced to think through this stuff. And um, it seems as though there's a particular way, and I could be wrong here. um, And if I am, just write me an email. Uh, But it seems as though there's a particular way that empires order the world. And it's often this ordering that's given towards uh, coercive military force. A force that aims to conquer everybody and anybody who gets in their way. This is hammer power. This was literally the motto of the Roman Empire, peace through victory, which means this, that you either stand with us or against us. And if you stand against us, you stand at the end of our spears. And so in my mind, the impulse of the crowd is right. They are righteously indignant at the violence that the Romans have done to them and to other nations. And so in Jesus, they see a way out. They see a way through. But if you, if you think back with me to like where this whole thing started, and I'm not just talking about the letter to Philemon or Jesus's life and ministry. I'm talking about like back to the genesis of it all. And think back to page three and the human fallout story. We encounter Eve, and Eve is is there, and this odd evil shows up. The serpent shows up and begins this dialogue, and now Eve is standing at the tree of life, and she's looking at it and surveying it. She's saying, all right, it's delightful. It's it's beautiful. It's, It's good for food. I think it's able to make one wise. So she saw, and she took on her own terms. And then she gave to her husband who was with her and he ate as well. And there's this proverb that that goes on to talk about this and and it says it this way. It says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. And right here, I think we feel the tension of Philemon, of of this scene in John 6. Like the, the crowd, they see Jesus. He's filled their stomachs. So certainly he's good for abundance for food. And he's also full of wisdom. Surely if they make him king, it'll go well with them. It'll go well for them. It's like this whole time this crowd is eating, but they, but they um, actually don't have the true filling. It's like the deaf are hearing, the, and yet they don't know how to listen. And the lepers are cleansed. They finally have access to the temple, and yet they miss Jesus. They miss Jesus. It's like Jesus' own disciples. They see the glory of God the Father in the face of Jesus and that they remain blind to Jesus' vision for a new way forward in the world. And then one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, uh, he even goes so far as to like take Jesus aside to give him a stern talking to, which, by the way, never goes well. 
So he takes Jesus aside. Jesus has just said that he's going to set his face towards Jerusalem, that he's uh, actually going to suffer, that he's going to die, and that he's going to be raised in the power of God on the third day. But Peter's like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is not the Messiah path that I have carved out for you, Jesus. So he takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. And then just go here with me. If you're in John, flip back over to Matthew 16. Look what Jesus says to Peter's rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus will not abide by Peter's rebuke. It's like there's a different way of being in the world, this way of faithful presence, this way of expectancy. And Jesus is moving into this, but Peter is saying, no, 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 Jesus, that certainly can't be the way. There's got to be a different way. And the reality is, is that Peter and the crowds have been, they've been so shaped, so formed by empire. Of course, they want Jesus to pick up the hammer. They want Jesus to pry up the boot off of their necks and then just turn around and crush the empire. This is, this is the natural impulse. I think it's in you and I think it's in me. But Jesus isn't gonna crush anyone. This is precisely why all along Jesus is telling everyone to keep quiet because rather than bring a hammer, he's gonna allow his enemy to crush him. He's gonna allow his enemy to, to pour out their best upon him for our rebellion. He's gonna stand in that place for his namesake. And this was like a gut check I felt. So I'm just, uh, as your pastor, I'm just here. Here you go. Here's a gut check for you. Um, who are you in these stories? Who do you identify with? I mean, are, are you like, yeah. Get behind me, Peter. Like, come on. Or are you the crowd that's looking for Jesus to just bless your agenda? What if we are actually Peter? What if we're the crowd and we want Jesus to swing the hammer just as badly? See, in God's economy, the way forward, it's not with a hammer. It's, it's through the darkest places. I mean, we're about to step into Advent and feel the weight of this. Sometimes we, we like confuse Advent and Christmas. Christmas comes after Advent. Advent is the weight of the waiting. And sometimes it's through these places, through death itself. It's, it's like Jesus is trying all over the gospels to help his followers wake up to a new way of ordering the world that there's this like smell power available. But you know, smells, uh, they take time to work on us. Hammers are much more efficient. You can drive a nail with a hammer. You can pry up a board. They're much more direct, much more efficient. Smells are not efficient. They get blown around by the wind. We're trying to track them down. They take time. Like, it takes time. It's like, and I know this is mixing metaphors, but just go with me. It's like when a seed goes into the earth, it actually goes into the dark. It's unseen. It's hidden away in obscurity, possibly forgotten. And then slowly but surely over time, it begins to shoot forth out of the darkness into light. And in season, it bears fruit. 
And there was a scene in this, in this documentary that like so captured my imagination. It was like the fruit bearing out in this man's life. And he's sitting there talking about these shootings having taken place. And then he pauses and he, he cites the uncharred streets of Charleston as evidence of the goodness of God. This is smell power. This is a man who has tasted death, who has spoken forgiveness over his enemies and yet says it is the uncharred streets. He refuses to pick up the hammer. This man, he has been so wooed by the words and way of Jesus. And my prayer in in seeing this was like, may it be for us as well, Gateway. I think Jesus is actually calling out to us. And I would just have us to listen to Jesus. So go with me to John chapter 12. And we're just about on our way to Philemon. This is John 12, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. See, this this is the very tension of Philemon. You say, God, what, what do you mean? Well, let me tell you. Will Philemon follow the way of Jesus? Will he receive the invitation of Paul to enter into this strange and upside down ordering of the world? Because you see, for Philemon, there's a different way of ordering the world. It's this way of hammer power. I don't know if you recall this, but Philemon is a householder in the ancient Near East. He's in this Greek and Roman empire as a householder. His position, his honor would actually cover his whole household. But the way that he would maintain his honor is by not receiving any shame. The way he would maintain the honor for his household is through direct, straight line hammer power. And so Paul's request to receive back Onesimus, this, this like, who's a slave of Philemon's, this is a public shaming. This is upside down. It's backwards. It doesn't make sense. And yet it is into this world that Paul and his master Jesus, they come with a new way of ordering the world. It's, it's how Paul can, from prison, say words like this. Go with me to Philemon. You're like, praise Jesus, we're getting there. Philemon 21, or excuse me, Philemon 17. If you consider me your partner, receive him. That's Onesimus as you would receive me. Or, or check out Philemon 21. Paul like doubles down. He says, I write to you knowing, this is like full confidence that you will do even more than I say. Or look at Philemon 8, just go up a little bit here. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ, to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. This is the faithfulness of Jesus. This is the faithfulness that Jesus is on about. And this, this is what Paul is inviting Philemon into. 
Paul is inviting Philemon to enter into this new ordering of the world, a way of where masters and slaves meet together as brothers in Christ, where like reconciliation isn't just for Hallmark, it's actually for the people of Jesus. That this would be our very heartbeat. You see, Philemon's not just some nice Bible story where we learn about how to like forgive those who have offended us or something like that, or how we learn to move towards others with humility. Yeah, Paul's in prison and he's writing to a master. Okay, okay, yeah, I get it. This is not just at some nice Bible story. This this is our lives. I mean, this next week, some of us are gonna be with people who we despise. There are gonna be people who have so gotten under our skin that what we've thought about for the past month is how you're gonna pick up the hammer. Gateway, this is not the way of Jesus. This is not how we move in the world. Ours is not to pick up a hammer. Ours is to speak forgiveness over these spies. And it's not like when you're uh, at the dinner table that you're doing this. It's not to publicly shame these people. It's in a moment of silence. And maybe, maybe we could be so bold to say to this person, the words that you said really hurt. I'm not sure how to move forward. I forgive you. And I'm going to act like I forgive you. I'm not putting on a show. I I really mean this. But you know what happens in a moment like that? You die a little bit. Because you know what we're really good at? We're really good at blessing the Lord Jesus and then cursing our brother and sister with the very same lips. You know what we're really good at? We're really good at smiling, but holding some daggers in our words. And then at the right moment behind that person's back, after the sincere smile is given, we turn to our neighbor and we stab them. And I'm not just talking about Thanksgiving, y'all. Like this, (laughs) like this this could be in your office. See, there's a different way of ordering the world. And the reason that we sat for three stinking weeks with the same 25 verses is because we need it to mess with us. We need these words to show us there is a different way. And I know, like, I know there are some people who you're gonna be with who have had their literal boots on your neck and they've had their metaphorical boots on your neck and you are desperate for Jesus to pry them off. In the face of that, I, I, I just turned to somebody smarter than me. His name's Philip Yancey. He, has says, he says this. He says, perhaps something like this was what Jesus had in mind. In the soil of this violent, disordered world. By the way, this is our world. This violent, disordered world. An alternative community may take root. It's a community that lives in a hope of a day of liberation. In the meantime, it aligns itself with another world. That's what the book, the letter to Philemon is doing for us. It's helping us align our lives with this different ordering, not just spreading rumors, but planting settlements in advance of the coming reign. See, there is a king who is on his throne and his name is Jesus. And if we have given our allegiance to him, then why aren't we living like it? Those words aren't just for you. Those are for me. See, for Philemon to receive Onesimus back is like forgiveness being spoken over Dylan Roof's life, his very soul. I mean, there's there's sure to be outrage to come from those carrying hammers. 
Like, or what are the other householders in Colossae going to do when Philemon receives Onesimus back? What kind of odd precedent if a slave owner receives back a slave as a brother? What's that going to do there? It's going to turn things upside down. See, the truth is, Gateway, that, that, the, that this ordering of the world is not always delightful. And none of you are learning anything new when I said that. But we need to be reminded of this. That it does come with a cost. That it does come with deep pain and tears. But can I just, like, you're not alone in this. But if you, if you would, just do me this favor. Make some noise real quick, just with your feet. Okay, now look to your left, look to your right, look behind you. Are there people here? Did you, did you hear their feet rumbling? This is silly, right? But, but I'm just telling you, you're not alone. And these, the, those feet that are rumbling, you're either gonna move with confidence towards these people or you're gonna move away from them in fear and shame. But there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So we are actually here to do this with each other. We're here to be this bond of peace, to maintain unity together. And just, just so you see this, like these are the words of Paul who's written this letter to Philemon. He's writing to a different community. And just let these words be a salve for Philemon having messed with you these past three weeks. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus's sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And if you were here for the first time and you were like, what in the world am I doing in church today? You're, you're telling me I'm gonna die? I thought Jesus was like a hippie. I thought Jesus was like here to just like bless my stuff. No, no, no. We carry around the death of Jesus so we might carry around the life of Jesus because life comes through the grave. In Jesus, this is the scandal of the gospel. And I think now we're finally preaching. Um, like this is the reality that we're all stepping into. The end of the matter for us, Gateway, is to display the power of life amidst death. This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.